Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. As always, thank you for joining us again and supporting our podcast. Today, I will be interviewing an amazing doctor who I've had the pleasure to train with. She's absolutely amazing, as I said, and extremely smart. Uh, So I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Marciana Laster. Dr. Marciana Laster is a pediatric nephrologist at UCLA. She was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and completed medical school at Northwestern University. She then moved to Los Angeles, California for a residency in pediatrics at LA County USC Medical Center and a fellowship in nephrology at UCLA. Dr. Laster spends her days caring for children who require dialysis and kidney transplants. She's also a physician scientist and performs research to address racial ethnic disparities in pediatric kidney disease. When she's not working, she spends her time with her cute five-year-old daughter, Lila, and her husband, Charles. So welcome, Dr. Marcy, to our podcast. It's such an honor to have you here and be able to ask you about your medical journey. Our hope is that there's a listener out there who will hear your story and your journey today and see a reflection of himself or herself in you. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love the idea of your podcast. I love the idea of providing experience broadly to future minority doctors. Um, I think it's a great idea and will have a great impact. So thank you for having me. Yes, thanks. Okay, so let's start out by if you can just explain what exactly a pediatric nephrologist is and then what a typical day is like for you. So I am a pediatric kidney doctor. I take care of kids who have kidney diseases of all kinds, especially kids whose kidney diseases cause their kidneys to fail and they require dialysis or transplant. So a typical day for me, it really depends on what I'm doing. So I can be assigned to be in the hospital a week out of the month, or I can have time at home or in the office to do research. So on a a typical day in the hospital, I'll go in, I'll round with the, the team, which includes the residents, the fellows, sometimes medical students and other people like social workers and, and staff. And we'll round on the patients that are admitted. And then afterwards, we'll do some teaching, usually nephrology-related teaching. And then afterwards, we'll get consults, which are these calls from other teams to come see their patients because they believe their patients have kidney issues. So that's a typical day in the hospital. And when I'm on research, my day can really look like I like it to look. So I can um, decide to spend my morning focused on writing a paper or doing more research on the computer, or I can decide to delay that to the afternoon and maybe create a presentation. So it really all depends on um, what I have to do at that time. And I like research because I really get to fill my day out the way that I want to fill it out. Um, there's no schedule to it, and it's really just up to me to get the projects done. So what type of research do you do, or what's your area that you really are interested in? So my research is in racial ethnic disparities and differences within the pediatric kidney disease community. So I specifically look at racial differences in at the level of bone because our kids, when their kidneys fail, their bones go haywire. And a lot of what we do on a day-by-day basis is really treating the bone disease because the bone and the heart interact in kidney failure. 
So we want to make sure that we're treating that bone disease the best way that we can. So what my research does or is attempting to do is to move towards a more precision medicine kind of treatment where each patient gets the right treatment at the right time as opposed to treating patients broadly. So the first way that I've um, gone about getting a more precision medicine approach is by looking at racial ethnic differences and how that might inform the care that we give our patients. Okay. What kind of disparities have you seen with your research? Yeah, so it's interesting. I just gave a talk on disparities yesterday, so it's all fresh in my mind. Um, So in in pediatric kidney disease, so I was actually surprised. So where we trained, we we saw a lot of disparities, right, in residency. Thankfully, we had LA County USC who was directly tackling those disparities in health equity or health access with our patient population. But I was surprised when I came out of county that there were disparities within pediatric nephrology. And when one of my mentors told me that, I was, I was a little bit like, wow, like there could be disparities in who gets a transplant or who, how quickly you end up on dialysis. It really surprised me. So I started to do a little bit of background into the disparities that existed. And one of the major ones is that um, Black kids who are on dialysis, they have a much higher mortality rate, 64% higher meaning they die more than white kids who are on dialysis. And we don't know the exact cause of this, but we know that a lot of that death is due to cardiovascular issues. And you may be thinking, well, kids don't usually get cardiovascular disease, but when, they're in, when their kidneys fail, they actually die of things like heart attacks, strokes, things like that. So my research is really trying to look at how the bone might be affecting that heart system and make sure that what we do to the bone isn't driving that disparity and mortality that we see. That's interesting. That's a huge difference, the 64% that you mentioned. It is, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're doing that work. That is very meaningful. Are you the, the first doctor in your family? I am. I'm the first doctor. Uh, my mom had aspirations of being a doctor, and she's always been in the medical field. I spent so much time in different parts of the hospital growing up, like, you know, not like behind the scenes in the hospital, but she was a phlebotomist. And like, we, we literally would just hang out in the hospital, like at the gift shop. Um, she'd just take me around to different places. So I had the feeling of being in a hospital environment, but I am the first doctor within my family. Wow. So everybody's so proud. So what is the best part you like about your job? And then the worst part, what would you say? The best part of my job is I actually love seeing our kids in the dialysis unit. So another part of my day is that I'll go over to the dialysis unit. So kids come in three times a week and they need to get their blood cleaned using our big dialysis machine. So they're sitting there for three to four hours while our machine cleans their blood. And although it's really sad to think of a kid on dialysis and it's definitely not an easy time for them, the unit is it has that pediatric feel. The nurses are just really, you know, it's funny because they weren't, they never set out to be pediatric dialysis nurses, but they've just come around these kids and they support them. And the unit is very childlike and fun. And I just love the environment. But one of the best things about that environment is seeing the patients when they open up finally, because when they first start dialysis, rightfully so, they're really closed off. They're trying to process the whole deal. It's different. Their whole life has changed. Suddenly they're coming to a place at 6 a.m. to get their blood clean and sitting there for three hours. So the the tendency is for them to shut down. 
But even just of this week, I saw some teenagers on dialysis and they were actually talking to me. I was like, oh my gosh, you're like a really cool kid. Like you're talking to me. And it took a whole year for them to really open up. But at some point they like open up and they never get used to dialysis because it's just not a good experience. But I think they come and at least open up to our unit. Um, and we get to see them blossom in that way. If you can just explain what dialysis is just for our listeners. So dialysis is a process where we replace the function of the non-functioning kidneys. So usually your kidneys clean your blood and remove fluid for you, pee for you. But when your kidneys fail, they can't do that anymore. So dialysis is a form of cleaning the blood. The most common type is called hemodialysis, and that's where blood comes out of the body. It goes into a machine. The machine cleans it, removes any extra fluid, and then sends the clean blood back into your body. And that's probably the form that you've heard of if you have family members that are on dialysis, although there are other forms of dialysis out there. Thank you for clarifying that. And then what would you say is the worst part about your job? So the worst part is definitely the death that we see in this field. In pediatrics in general, there doesn't tend to be a lot of mortality or death from disease, but as you start to specialize um, in, say, nephrology, the patients that you see are just sicker. You see more ICU patients, and it's definitely the loss of life that's the hardest. And of course, we try our best, but some things are just beyond your control. Most things are beyond your control. You try your best with your book knowledge, but most things are just can't be prevented. And sometimes it's sudden, and um, it is a hard part of our job, but I am grateful for the opportunity to be able to provide a lot of our patients the chance to continue living. So dialysis can be life-sustaining, whereas if they did not have dialysis, it, there would not be another option for them. So even in the sickest patients, just the opportunity to give them the chance to continue to fight whatever disease they're fighting by providing dialysis does make it worthwhile. Yes, I would definitely relate to that. Even just, I think in any profession you go to at one point, you will lose patience and it's definitely the hardest part. But it's nice to be there while during the process that you're able to hold their hand and help them and comfort them as much as you can while they're getting treatment. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your upbringing and background. So if you can tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about what your upbringing was like in Chicago and then your background, just what it was like growing up as uh, Marcy before she became Dr. Marcy. Okay. So I say I'm from Chicago, but in reality, I'm from the South suburbs of Chicago, the same area. So I can say I'm from Chicago. So I grew up in the South suburbs, a lot of small suburbs stuck together um, on the South side of Chicago. and. I grew up in a place called Harvey, Illinois, um, which is, it's an okay place. Um, it's not, you know, I don't think many people were rushing to move into Harvey, Illinois. It was often the opposite, but I did have, you know, great teachers there in my high school, despite the fact that people wouldn't necessarily believe that it's a, a great performing school. I had so much, so many resources by growing up in Harvey, and I actually wouldn't change anything about it. But growing up, I was the only girl, and um, I had I grew up with three brothers in the house. I have seven brothers total. I didn't grow up with them all in the house, though. Um, but growing up as the only girl, I spent a lot of time just kind of, I think, in my head, you know, journaling, 
singing to myself, like by myself in the room, like late at night. I used to watch like BET late at night and just like singing. And like, I thought I wanted to be a singer. And it's so funny because I never, for some reason, despite where I grew up and my surroundings, I never felt limitations. And I think that's because of my mom's impact. So for me, it was like, oh, you can be a famous singer or you can be a doctor, just make a choice. So for it was like either one of those were within the realm of possibility. None of that was off the table. So at some point I decided, yeah, I'll be a doctor. You know, I'll let that singer thing go away. Being a doctor is easier. It was actually the conversation I had with myself. So I never, it's funny, I never felt those limitations. Um, and my mom says that I said I want to be a doctor from the age of four, which I doubt it. But now my, do- my daughter is saying that she wants to be a doctor and she's five. She keeps asking me, can we go take care of the patients at the hospital? And I had to tell her yesterday, mommy is off for the week. <laughs> like, I'm not going back into the hospital right now. But yeah, that's how I grew up. Only girl, a lot of time spent alone and just really with an idea of just limitless opportunity out there, which I truly think that um, faith is a huge part of my life. And I, I can't imagine that that is anything other than God inspired because nothing about my surroundings said that I could be whatever I want. But at, there was never a point where I really doubted it. It was just a matter of making a decision of what I wanted to be. So, you know, I have to bring this up because I know this about you and you didn't bring it up that you participated in beauty pageant. So mm-hmm. come on, let it out. <laughs> so I did. And I was in medical school when I did it. <laughs> so I participated in beauty pageants. I wanted to be Miss America. And unfortunately, I was not Miss America, as you can see. But I enjoyed I really enjoyed pageants. I can't even say like, oh, they were superficial. It was a a bad time in my life. Like, no, it was like one of the best times in my life. I actually learned so much about myself during beauty pageants. And I heard how I got started is I heard an ad on the radio, 17 years old, ad on the radio while I'm Uh driving, beauty pageant coming to the the Holiday Inn down the street. So I like, okay, that sounds cool. I'm 17. I show up that first day, my my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, he drops me off and I'm like crying in the lobby. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I sign up for? Why am I here? This was the dumbest thing I ever done. But by the time I left two days later, like I did not want to leave. I was like sold on pageants. I would still be doing pageants now if they didn't make you age out (laughs) at the age of 25 for Miss America. (laughs) I'd probably still be doing it, but it was really good. It was a fun time. So was your special talent singing then? It was, and um, it didn't go so well all the time because I had like terrible stage fright. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, behind the scenes, I think I sounded okay, but as soon as I got on the stage, it was like, Ugh. <laughs> it's not what I practiced. So, <laughs> I, I didn't know you sang actually, just from even while all that this time that I've known you, I didn't know you, you did singing too. No. How come you never sing with us when we were in, in in residency in those late nights? Were you singing somewhere? Was did I miss the the singing? <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you know how it is at at two or three in the morning. You get kind of crazy. <laughs> so no, yeah, I hit it. I hit it. Um, There's only one time where I actually sang, and it was at one of our attendings houses. And my co-resident was on the piano. We were singing um, John Legend, oh. all of you. Um, or all of me, I don't know what it's called anymore, but we just like had a little jam session. A lot of people, you know, were there. I don't know if you, if you happened to leave early that day, but it was, that was the only time I sang in residency. Okay. You got to sing something for us right here. No, I'm going to put you off. Oh, <laughs> Come on. 
good. You can do John, the John Legend song you said, whatever song you want. Oh, God. Just anything. Just that one. So much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me see. I like, um, I like, I really like Hamilton is one of my faves. Oh, so yeah. what's a good Hamilton song? Oh, yeah. What about the one with um, Leslie O'Dell? Oh, Dear Theodosia. Absolute favorite song. Okay. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> Dear Theodosia, what to say to you? You have my eyes, but you have your mother's name. When you came into the world, you cried, and it broke my heart. I'm dedicating every day to you. Domestic life was never quite my style when you smiled. I love it. Oh my God, you are amazing. See, I didn't even know this. All right, other than being a beauty queen, a singer and everything else. So I know you mentioned that you decided to become a doctor or I guess you mentioned it to your mom when you were at a young age, but when did you definitely say, okay, I'm going to pursue being a doctor? And then what other careers did you ever consider? Other than singing, obviously. <laughs> so I think the time came, so I was wavering between pre-med and pre-law, still in high school. And I don't know, I don't actually don't know why I was considering law. It might've been some things that were going on in my family. Um, in particular, my uncle, one of my youngest uncles was killed by law enforcement. And so I think maybe that was part of the reason why I was considering law at that time. But then my boyfriend, who's now my husband, he ended up having a couple medical issues, um, epilepsy, and he had a ruptured appendicitis and actually got very, very sick. So at that point, I, I had this feeling like I want to know what's going on with the health of the people around me. And I just really felt like I didn't want to be on the outside of that. Like I wanted to be able to speak into those things and to have the knowledge. And so I think that really tipped me over to, okay. I'm going to go into medicine because I really want to know what's going on with my family. And I, I think I spoke that into existence because like, I literally know what's going on with every family member and any medical problem that they have, you know, they call me, we discuss it and I help them work it, work through it with their doctors. So I think that's what finally tipped me over. Okay. And then um, what other careers did you ever consider? So I would say law was the only other thing that I really... I think strongly considered in terms of what to go to, to college for. Yeah, I think those were the only two choices. Okay. And then singing, you said in the, mm -hmm. when you were younger. <laughs> when you were deciding to become a doctor, what was the one thing that most made you question yourself if this was an achievable goal? So I sort of had this blind momentum, I would say. So I would make steps to do things without really processing what, what I was doing. So, you know, going to college for me was just like, okay, even though no one has ever gone to a four-year college around me, it was just like, okay, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. Sign up for college, get some scholarships, do it. Then go into medical school, apply to medical school. This is what you do. Um, this is the natural progression. But as I did all of those things, the, the one thing that stood out and that I had to battle with was the idea of whether I was just um, smart within my, my community as opposed to I'm smart enough to accomplish what it takes to be a doctor. 
And so I had to fight those feelings because, you know, maybe I'm just Harvey smart or although a lot of smart people come out of Harvey, mm-hmm. a lot of doctors, um, a lot of people have become doctors that I've grown up with. But just this feeling of, you know, this person went to this college or they grew up in this environment or, you know, just those feelings of whether I'm good enough was always the issue that I I dealt with, with every step along the way. Thank you for bringing that up. It's a topic that we talk about on our podcast because it's a common theme and a common feeling amongst a lot of us. Exactly what you said is, am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Can I actually really do it? So thanks for sharing that with us. Can you just maybe tell our listeners about what your journey was like going through college, medical school, and even residency or fellowship? Just maybe some key points that you'd like to share with some of the high school and college students listening today. So my journey was one of sort of a new adventure at every turn because I didn't have anyone to tell me what to expect. So even just applying to medical school, I look back on that time and I I just realized that it would have been nice for someone to just let me know how to be prepared or, you know, even what's the best way to dress for a medical interview or a medical school interview. It would have been nice to have someone who's gone before me. And I didn't have that mentorship. And hopefully your listeners are developing that mentorship um, either through this podcast or other ways. So I think that was the hardest part is just knowing what comes next. but. Thankfully, that didn't stop me because for some reason, I I just, like I said, I had this blind momentum where I would just do the next step. I like to check things off my list. And so whatever was next on the list is what I would check off. And my medical journey really has been one of, I believe God just really guided my journey to the point where things that didn't happen that I thought I wanted to happen actually were for my benefit. So like even in residency, my number one residency choice, I thought I was going to go there. I did not get it. Where I ended up though, Zoma, as you know, was so key to my development, like crucial to my development. I was surrounded by people who believed in me and who set me up for chances to shine. So even when things didn't go right or what I thought was right, it worked out for my good. And I can definitely say my journey did not take the steps that I planned, but the steps that it did take where everything I needed, where I am now is literally because I ended up at LACUSC and I met my mentor there who then helped me to get into fellowship at UCLA and eventually end up as faculty there. So the journey can be, it will take you where you need to be. So even if you get disappoint, what seems like disappointing news, just know that there could be something where you end up that's, that's important for you to gain in your journey. Yeah. Sometimes you don't, you, you get bummed about an outcome, right? And it actually ends up being a blessing in disguise. And I've, I and I agree with you with that. It's usually we plan things to go a certain way, but they never do. Yeah, <laughs> they go up, down, and all around. So I, I definitely agree. I remember when we were in residency that you had shared with us um, about a medical condition that you actually have, and I just bring this up because. We have had students who reach out to us who have chronic underlying medical conditions, and they question themselves in high school or even college if this would be a limiting factor in them becoming a physician. So yes, so I do have um, chronic hearing loss. I learned about my hearing loss while in medical school. 
So throughout my life, I just had trouble hearing. So a friend would whisper something to me. I never hear it. And so it was just kind of the running joke of like, you never hear anything. And I just breeze by, get through it, sit in the front of the class so I can hear the teacher. But in medical school, it just became impossible to breeze by anymore. I don't know if it got worse or if um, the larger classrooms made it harder. But I remember sitting in our problem-based learning classes. So my hearing loss actually gets worse when I'm in small environments because people tend to talk quieter and there's no amplification. In our problem-based learning classrooms where you come together with a small group of, of your colleagues in medical school and you talk about a specific case and you learn together, I could not hear a thing, absolutely nothing. And part of how you get graded is your interaction. And so I literally could not interact. So I had to make a decision to do something. I went and got a diagnosis from the ENT doctors there, and I was told I have otosclerosis, which is when your little bone in your ear becomes calcified and it doesn't move very well on your eardrum so that you get a conductive type of hearing loss. And so, great, you know, I have a diagnosis, but I had no money to afford hearing aids was the issue um, or even correction. So the first thing I did until I got a coverage for my hearing aids was I went to Radio Shack. And I got this little sound amplifier box, and you wear it with um, just a you wear it with a set of um, AirPods or a set of um, headphones. And the way I learned about it is one of on the geriatrics rotation, my attending told me that um, the old people come in with their little boxes to amplify sound. I'm like, hmm, that sounds like something I could use. So I go to radio <laughs> my little box. But I was so nervous to use this in front of my classmates because, you know, obviously it's going to be like, what, what's going on? What's your box doing? And why do you have on headphones? And so I just made myself use it. And I would practice at home how to turn the volume up and down discreetly. But then at some point I have to use it in these problem-based learning sessions. And so I just did. And things looked up from there. Like I just had to do it and no one really said anything. It was just like, okay, you got a little box. Let's keep going. Let's talk about this patient. So, you know, it was a hard thing for me to do, but thankfully, eventually I was able to get hearing aids to correct the hearing loss. And I did learn a whole lot about myself during that time. And it really just made me step out and just be like, hey, this is who I am. I can't hear you. If you want me to participate, I'm going to have to use this little box here. So just to get that out there, let's keep going. See this patient. So yeah. So my hearing loss does still affect me. So I wear hearing aids, but I've become like the master at taking my hearing aids out before I um, listen to a patient's heart. So I'm like discreetly, you know, taking it out, dropping it into my pocket, um, put on my amplified stethoscope so that I can actually hear what's happening and then, you know, listening and then putting them back on so that I can talk to the patient afterwards. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure there's someone here that will listen to that. Or, you know, sometimes there's kids that have unilateral hearing loss, so they can hear well from one ear and they can't and they're, and they're just born with it, too. So it's nice for them to hear if um, that they can also become physicians, it should not be a limiting factor whatsoever. Yeah, it should not because you would think for a doctor that hearing loss would be a limiting factor. We have to use our stethoscopes. We have to talk to our patients. Mm -hmm. But there's a way around a lot of things. So even if you have other chronic illnesses or issues, there are ways around them. So don't let that limit you. See what other people have done or see if there are modifications that you can take to make this happen. I can tell you a lot of doctors have chronic illnesses that you'll never know about, but that it never limited them or stopped them from becoming a doctor. Exactly. 
What obstacles, at least that you feel were your obstacles, did you face along this whole medical journey? And then how did you overcome those? My obstacles, I really think were internal. I did not, and I, I laugh about this because I don't, I don't know if it was protection. It probably was protection, uh, divine protection of me, or if it was my hearing loss, where I didn't encounter a lot of people, a lot of pushback racially. But what I dealt with was the internal feeling of being other. So I say it could have been my hearing loss because a lot of things that were said, I would often not hear. So even when I had my hearing aids correction, depending on the setting, it may breeze by me and I might not hear it. And if it just seemed like an offhand comment, I would just let it just let it roll because I didn't hear it in the first place. So I, I wonder if that sort of protected me from the outside world. But internally, I felt the sense of being other. It's gotten less so as I've gone up the ladder. But initially, being in a medical school class and not seeing many people that look like you or that you can relate to, that can be a real internal struggle. And I love where I trained um, for medical school because it was just, it was about the medicine and it was about the teaching and it was about everybody being a great doctor. The standards were just, they were high, but they pushed you to get to those standards. And I just really, I really felt supported there. But because of my sort of internal struggles with being other, I didn't really connect with people. And I think that's probably one of the difficult things is that I felt so outside that I didn't build relationships. I probably have one or two medical school friends out of a class of 200. So I, I just never really felt integrated because I always just wondered, am I good enough? Do I belong here? I was on the wait list at the school. Do I really belong here? You know, I was on the wait list. I didn't get chosen. Around. <laughs> am I like the second choice? Like that thing. Don't let that bother you. If you get into medical school, you belong there. Even if you're trying on your second, third application, you belong there when you get there. So you just have to, to know that. And I will tell you this, the higher up you go, you realize that people are not that smart. They have nothing more than you. <laughs> and I think Michelle Obama said it, the people around the table are actually not that smart. Like it's average intelligence. and. A lot of us actually, because we've been pushed and we've had to try so hard, we actually have above average intelligence or above average abilities because of our background of being able to be empathetic and associate with different people, of just being caring and really caring about what we do. We have an above average set. So don't let those internal feelings persuade you away from this field because literally when you get to the top, those people, I'm like telling you, like, if I could name names, <laughs> I would, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> They're not, there's nothing superhuman about people. It's about how hard you work. And for some people, charisma and, you know, connection carries them to the top and it's not necessarily intelligence. So be comfortable in yourself and let your natural personality your charisma and your hard work carry you to the top because you can get there. Yeah. We're, we're going to have this uh, discussion on one of our episodes on resiliency. And I always think if there's a way we can measure resiliency intelligence, I think that is so important. And that, and that really shows those, it could really bring out those students. They, they will make it. They will make it in medical school because we have gone through so much in our lives and we've had to figure it out. One example is like you said, I couldn't afford a hearing aid. 
I'm going to figure this out another way. That's resiliency, right? (laughs) So, and then that's why you make it. So um, very, very important. And I agree with you. I think connections allow people to get in. I was too waitlisted on everything as well. (laughs) And I said, they kind of want me, but they don't. Exactly. Oh, man. It plays with you. It plays with your, with your psyche a bit. Oh but my gosh. Medical school. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, and I almost feel like, and I mentioned this in a podcast. I almost feel like it's worse than just being straight out rejected. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I'm like, that you're just in limbo, and you just don't know if you're good enough. It makes you yeah. question yourself even more. But thank you. But yes, but the listeners should know that if you are waitlisted, that still means that you're in the top echelon of applicants and it played with me for four years of medical school but I was waitlisted was kind of the ringing tone in my head let that go if I could change anything I would have totally let that go exactly okay if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self say when you were in high school or college what advice would you give yourself if I could go back in time I would tell my younger self to really focus on who I am as a person and really try to get to know myself and to be that self in all environments. So as I grew up, maybe because of the hearing loss, maybe because of what was transpiring in my life, I think I became what other people needed me to be, which was very just reserved and not really wanting to shine, not really wanting to ruffle feathers. And Maybe it served a purpose in life, but it went on and it carried on throughout life. And I would say really just explore who you are and your identity even early on, because it will, it's nice if you can be you as you go through this ladder, as you go up the ladder through medicine, it's nice if you can bring your authentic self to the process and not the self that you think you need to be for it. So I was a very compliant person. So, and I, I think the pageantry actually fed into my, my compliance because I wanted to do things the way the other girls did it. I didn't want to stand out like, oh, this is, this is what you wear. This is how you say it. So I really became very compliant. And I think that carried over into medicine, whereas I didn't bring my, my natural self into the process. But instead, I tried to emulate what others look like or, you know, how others went about doing things, how they interacted. I think that's getting better now because, you know, I'm forced to deal with with my colleagues and I really want them to see who I am and not necessarily what they're comfortable with all the time. But if you learn it early on, you might not have the struggle I have right now figuring it out who I am, especially in this big career in this field of medicine. You definitely learn that sometimes ruffling feathers is necessary to bring change. Yeah. And sometimes they get ruffled just because they're easily ruffled and not because of who you are, but you don't change who you are because those Mm -hmm. people are easily ruffled. Um, And that's what I'm realizing about myself. Yes. And then just to close off, just the last question we like to ask a lot of the doctors that we have on here, what advice would you give to younger people today that are thinking about pursuing a career in medicine? The advice I would give is that you are on the right track because you are definitely needed in the medical field. There has been progress in terms of seeing more minority doctors, but there needs to be more progress. We need to have the representation of minority doctors needs to mirror the representation of our country. 
And that's just the bottom line, because we have a number of populations in our country that need assistance in trusting healthcare. And so part of that trust building is by seeing people who can relate to you physically by what you look like sometimes, background wise, or even just mentally what you've gone through. So we need all types of experiences, all types of people. So keep going and you're on the right track. I would say don't settle for less than what you want because there are options of, there are different ways to become a provider in this system. So if you're going for it to be a doctor, don't settle for anything less than that. Um, not to say that any other provider type is less, but if your goal is to, to set out to become another type of provider, push forward and become that. But if your goal is to become a doctor, you can do it. Don't let anyone talk you out of the ability of being a medical doctor. Because what you end up doing in the end, you both end up taking care of patients, but there are different levels to being a physician that you can take advantage of. So I really want to encourage you not to be dissuaded from your your original goal of setting out to become a physician, if that truly is what it is. It will be tough, and that's just the nature of doing of doing tough things. But like you said, Soma, with the resiliency that many of us have built up, we can do tough things. And when you hit a barrier, you just find a way around that barrier and you keep going. Thank you. I agree. It's it's sometimes, I think, people around you that will feed things into you to settle for less. But that little voice inside of you, listen to it. Because if you, I, and I, I agree with you, you, you have this sense where I want to be a doctor, but everything around you tells you otherwise it's blocking out the noise and listening to what's inside because that's really what you're meant to be. Yeah. So I agree with you. Okay. Anything else, Dr. Marcy, that you want to mention before we close it off or anything else? The only thing is I have to put a plug out there for pediatric nephrologists (laughs) because there are few of us. So you guys are early in your career, but remember pediatric nephrology, remember it is a great field. As you go up there in medical school, people will say that the nephrologists are so smart. Do not believe that. We just have a lot of formulas <laughs> that help us figure stuff out. It's all formulaic. It can all be figured out. So keep nephrology in mind. I'll even take adult nephrology. But pediatric nephrology, don't forget that name. I'm curious. Uh, do you know like the roughly the number of minorities in nephrology or pediatric nephrology? There are a few. I don't know the number offhand, but there are few, and I think I know them all. <laughs> there are so few. Okay. So um, there isn't a huge representation within pediatric nephrology. Okay. But I think it's a matter of, I can't say that it's any worse than medicine in general, though. Because it's pediatric, okay. it may be a little bit better represented, but I don't think it's any worse than, than medicine in general. Yeah, I was just asking because I think you are the only minority physician that's a nephrologist that I know. And I had that same conversation. We had a trauma surgeon on before and I said, you are the only one I have like personally met. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So please listen to Dr. Marcy. If the kidneys interest you, please go and become a, a nephrologist, pediatric or adult, whatever suits your flavor. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to our podcast today. I hope that hearing Dr. Marcy's story inspires you to continue your dream of becoming a doctor. Please feel free to share this podcast with your friends and families. 
as we are here to inspire a new generation of doctors. And please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, We are also now up on YouTube as well, so you can check us out there. And remember, you could also visit our website for additional resources at www.futureminoritydoctor.com. And peace and love, everyone.